Well, good morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name's Jason Smith. I'm a PhD student in linguistics at Michigan State. It was my midlife crisis was to go to graduate school. I study um, descriptive and theoretical syntax, which is um, word order, essentially, right? And I study a group of West African languages that have been written down but not analyzed very much. So this is what I do most of the week. Um, prior to starting a PhD, Laura and I and our kids, we lived in Rome, Italy for, uh, for a long time. We worked with crew. Laura still does work with crew at Michigan State. And we were gone from the United States for the better part of 13 years, from 2006 to 2018. And uh, when we came home, one of the questions that people would often, they would ask us some variation of the question about how the United States was different from when we left, right? And one of the areas where, uh, kind of looking at it now, where I see a significant change in our culture is how we interact with people with whom we disagree, with whom we do or might disagree. Um, I think that there are a lot of reasons that play into this. One of them, I'm sure, is that we spend more and more time with people who are similar to us, right? So I think both this is true in both kind of the physical world, right? But it's also true in kind of the online world as well. We tend to isolate ourselves from those who are different from us. Um, there's this uh, research study that was on the New York Times where you could put in your address and it would tell you the voting tendency of the 1,000 people that lived nearest to you, right? So I put in my address in East Lansing, Michigan, and it is 85% uh, Democrat, right? probably not a surprise if you live in the area, where I grew up at in Salem, Ohio, right, in eastern Ohio, it's 70% Republican, okay? And I think that this is probably, this strikes me as true. This seems like something that's happening kind of in the United States, right? Not everywhere, but I'm sure it's true in many places. It's true in the online world as well, right? We can choose who we're friends with, who we follow, you know, on our social media accounts. Um, you know, we keep up with people who are similar, I think, to who we are, right? So, and we see a lot, I think we see a lot of unkind behavior as well online and how people communicate with each other, particularly in the comments. Um, I like to read the New York Times and especially the comments section, and it's a treasure trove of um, harsh, um, lots of harsh communication. Um, but if you think about it, even when we disagree with someone on social media, what do we do? Well, we can just kind of unfriend them, stop following them. We can kind of make them go away from our life. This is the environment we live in today. And what I want us to think about this morning is how we, as followers of Jesus, right, how do we communicate well with those outside the church? God calls us to represent him well in the world, and I want to honor him. I know that I think that we all want to honor him as well on that. And so my goal this morning, I want to be fairly practical, and we're going to look at what I think is one of the most practical books of the Bible. We're going to look at James uh, chapter 1, and James is one of the oldest books of the New Testament, right? It's a letter that James wrote to the followers of Jesus who had been kind of forced to leave the area around Jerusalem. They were dispersed. They're trying to figure out how to live in a foreign and perhaps unfriendly culture. And James, he emphasizes themes like uh, perseverance, generosity, wisdom, self-control, love for others, right? All really practical things. And I, and I think that the book of James has real implications for us today, right? How can or should we be different from the world around us as followers of Jesus? 
How can we communicate with and build relationships with people that are really different from us? How can we share biblical truths with people whose views are really different from ours? And so looking at kind of two paragraphs in James 1, I want to highlight some principles that that James shares with these dispersed believers 2,000 years ago. And I, I believe that these are relevant to us as we seek to follow Jesus and love others well today. So I'm going to read the passage that we're going to look at. It's James 1, 16 to 21. So if you want to turn there, I'm going to read that and then, um, then I'm going to pray. Okay? So here's the passage, James 1, 16 to 21. It says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So let me pray before I, before I move on. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the truth that it reveals to us about who you are, about who we are, about how we can have a relationship with you, about how we can represent you well in this world. And so... This morning, as we look at this passage, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that the words that I share, that if they're your truth, they would stick well with people. Um, and if it's not, that, it would, that they would just forget it. So as we look at your word, I pray that you would really be honored. And uh, I ask that in your name. Amen. Okay, so before I start, I want to clarify one thing. So I talked about, you know, kind of uh, shared an example about living in a political bubble. I'm not talking about that this morning, right? That's not, I'm not talking about how to engage in political debate with people or, or how to, uh, what I want to talk about is how to engage in spiritual conversations with people, right? I'm thinking specifically of, of gospel-centered conversations with those outside of the church. So this might include conversations about biblical values, about what or why we believe what we believe, apologetic conversations, the content of the gospel, etc. right? So in the passage here, right, we see pr- three principles, okay, three principles that I believe ought to guide how we communicate with others outside of the church in gospel-centered conversation. So the first principle that I want us to see is this, and that is that we need to guard against being deceived by the world's values and methods, okay? We need to guard against being deceived by the world's values and methods. So let's look first at verse 16, and James gives a quite specific warning there to his readers. He says, do not be deceived, okay? So he's concerned that their thinking could be led astray by some teaching or some, some wrong thinking. And how might they be deceived? I can think of two ways, right? It could be either self-deception or it could be deception by the world around them. We see this idea of self-deception. We see it just a few verses prior, right? In verse 14. In verse 14, it says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So James indicates that each person is tempted when he or she is lured and enticed by his own desire. We each have a sin nature. It corrupts our thinking among, among many other impacts it has on our life. 
Now, in my life, one of the ways that this plays out is in selfishness, right? I realize that I want something, I convince myself that I deserve something, and then I, I act on it, right? That's a natural way I can see that self-deception kind of play out in my life. But we can also be deceived by the world around us when its values, when they infiltrate our own values and our thinking, right? We could see this in the passage that we read earlier. At the end of chapter 3, James con contrasts kind of godly wisdom with worldly or earthly wisdom, right? So earthly wisdom, what's it characterized by? Jealousy, ambition, disorder, and vile practice, right? Godly wisdom, on the other hand, what's it characterized by? Purity, peace, gentleness, mercy, fruitfulness, impartiality, sincerity. Right? These are two entirely different ways of living. So why would James be warning the readers of his letter to not be deceived, right? Well, remember, they've been kicked out of Jerusalem, and they're probably establishing new lives in a foreign place. So as followers of Jesus are kind of beginning to gather together in these environments, they're living among people who had very different worldviews from them. So think about the worldviews around them, right? The Roman Empire, what was it like at that time? Well, it was polytheistic. They were worshiping numerous gods. It was power-driven, right? They used military and political force to accomplish um, their goals. And it was focused on leader worship. Like in a, in a literal sense, they worshiped the Caesars as divine. And these values are so different from what James is encouraging. Purity, gentleness, peacefulness, mercy, right? And we see throughout the scripture, don't we, that those who walk with God run the risk of being deceived. I was thinking about this during the week, right? Look in Genesis 2. You could start in Genesis 2, and we see that Adam and Eve were, were deceived by the serpent. And then you go all the way to Revelation, right? And in Revelation, John is warning the church of Thyatira to not be deceived. It is a con consistent and constant theme throughout the scripture to hold firmly to God's truth and to not be led astray. And it's still true for us today, right? As followers of Jesus, our thinking or our, our belief system, our worldview, it needs to be shaped by God's revealed truth. And when worldly perspectives come in conflict with it, we need to turn to God's word. You know, practically speaking, we need to put God's word in first position and allow it to, to form how we understand the world around us. We need to regularly spend time in God's word because if not, we risk being deceived, right? I, I guess I think of it this way. We can think of, I'm thinking about what Justin shared a little bit even this morning, right? It could be easy to go through life storms and interpret who God is in light of that. But, but what do we need to do? Instead, we need to put God in first place and interpret those life storms through who he is and how we know he operates in the world, right? This has to be foundational to us. We live in the midst of a society whose values and worldview, they're, they're more than just a distraction to us, right? But they can actually infiltrate, pollute our understanding of God's revealed truth, right? Two aspects of it that I was thinking about, two ways kind of the broader, the broader culture can kind of influence and deceive us. One is in what society worships, and the other is in the worldviews that shape how society operates, Right? So what's our, what is our broader society worship? Well, power, money, beauty, success, influence, right? The things that we see in the advertising around us, what's popular on social media, right? Um, it shapes how people define a successful life. 
But I think that even more insidious, more dangerous are those worldviews that have become standard today, right? What do I mean by that? Well, for one, the idea that the individual is sort of the undisputed arbiter of truth, right? I have my truth, you have yours, and you're not allowed to question mine. That's a dangerous worldview when it infiltrates kind of um, our understanding of what it, who God is and how we're to relate to him. Or in our family, what we joke about is the worst advice ever, right? Follow your heart, right? The heart is deceitful above all else. Okay, that is biblical truth, right? Or you do you, live in the moment, right? Or this idea that our, our sexuality is the core of who we are, right? Or the idea that any restraint that, is, that you impose upon me is wrong. It keeps me from living the life that I deem is best for me. These are all ungodly principles, right? And what they tend to share is the idea that you me, I am the center of the universe, right? But the Bible teaches us otherwise, doesn't it? It's not all about you or me. It's about who God is, loving him and walking with him. So we don't want to be deceived by the values of the world around us, okay? So I guess we can think of that, that's kind of one side of the coin, right? Okay, the other side of the coin It's maybe not quite as explicit in this passage, but I believe this is a principle that ought to guide us every time we open our Bible, right? The second principle is this. We need to have an accurate view of who God is and how he operates in the world. I think this should, this really should guide our our scripture reading every time we open it. What do I learn about God in this passage? What are the implications for me in my life, right? Because God has revealed himself to us in his word. Okay? So I mentioned earlier that James is one of the oldest books in the New Testament. And I've often thought about what a fascinating time period that must have been, right? So Jesus has a group of disciples, right? And there's a larger group of people who are following him. He's teaching God's truth. He dies, he raises, and he's raised from the dead. And these people, his followers, begin to spread the good news. More and more people are beginning to gather to worship him. But they didn't have the New Testament, right? And so James's letter, it gives us a little bit of a glimpse of, of how theology was forming right at that time and how practice was forming right at that time, right? And James is writing specifically to Christians who are outside of Jerusalem, right? It, and, and here's the thing. It's not James's own thoughts, but this is God revealing himself through James's words. So what do we learn about God in this passage? Well, the first thing that we see is that God is our provider, God's our provider. And you can see this in verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow. So what are these good and perfect gifts? Well, James doesn't list what they are right here, okay? But if you look in the book of James, we see some things that it talks about that God provides for us, right? In James chapter 1, verse 5, it says that God gives wisdom to those who ask in faith. And in verse 18, chapter 118, it says, God has brought us forth by the word of truth, right? God reveals his truth to us. He's given us that. In verse 21, it says that God has given us um, the implanted word which saves our souls, right? The life-changing gospel God has provided for us. These are all ways that we can see God's provision. They're not things that we've earned. They're not things that we've deserved. Okay, what else do we see about God in this passage? Well, in verse 17, I think this is an incredible truth. We see that God is unchanging. 
He's the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's remarkable to think about that the God who's revealed himself to us in his word, since he's unchanging, he's still the same today. And when the world around us feels uncertain, when we have these life storms, when things don't make sense, we can rest in the knowledge that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is stable in the midst of the instability around us. In verse 18, we see that God's our creator. He brought us forth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his, of his creatures. God made each of us, not like in a, not in a factory kind of way, right? Where we're just kind of like where he's the factory owner and everything's off going there and he's just kind of stamping people out. That's not how God made us. He knows everything about us, the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? Think of Psalm 139, these words written by David. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So this is how God knows us as our creator. He knows us individually. In verse 20, we see that God is righteous. James writes that our anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires, right? Another translation of that, another way to translate that phrase is the righteousness of God. Our anger does not produce the righteousness of God. What does it mean that God's righteous? Well, he's holy. He's without sin. And he acts in accordance with that. He acts in accordance with his nature. In verse 21, we see that God's our savior. James says that we're to receive the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. God's provided his word, the gospel, that we can be saved, that we can have a relationship with him, right? So we can really see the gospel in this, can't we, right? God's our creator. God is righteous. God's our savior. Is it all about me? It's not. It's all about him, isn't it? And about the work that he is doing, okay? So, on one hand, right, so th this is a very different way of seeing the world, right, where God is at the center of it as opposed to a worldview where I am at the center of it, okay? And so on one hand, right, we have this idea that we have the revealed truth of who God is, and on the other hand, we have worlds, the world's values and worldview. And the thing that struck me is that oftentimes this is all people know is kind of the world's values and worldview. That's really all they know. And this is one of the reasons, one of the things that I love about graduate school, right? Every semester we try to have the other students in my program, there's about 20 or 25 PhD students in my program, we try to have them over to our house um, for a meal. And the reason is that we want to have that relaxed environment where we're together, where we're enjoying a meal together, where they can see our marriage, where they can see our family, right? Where they can just be together with us. And this has led to good opportunities for spiritual conversations um, that we might not otherwise be able to have. And that's actually been a way that we've really been able to minister to these students. And the truth is most of them, whether they're domestic or international, they just haven't ever been exposed to somebody or to a family that truly loves Jesus, right? And so we view this as a great way that we can minister to students. Okay, so how do we think rightly about God, right? I, I mean, to me, this is super practical, but we just have to get into the habit of regularly sitting down and reading his word. 
But maybe asking the question, okay, what am I learning about God as I'm opening up this passage of Scripture? If that's not something that you often think about, it's a real practical step. But how do you see, who, who do you see God to be as you're reading this passage? Okay, so then, the, so we've talked about these two sides of the coin, right? So we want to not be deceived by the world, by the world, world's worldview, and we want to think rightly about who God is. The last observation that I want to make is that we need to engage graciously with others. And this is a way that we can demonstrate God's love to people in a practical way, okay? And I don't know if you'd agree with me or not, but I said this earlier, I believe there's a, been a definite turn for the worse in how we communicate in our culture with others who disagree with us, okay? It shows up as mockery, argumentation, avoidance. But when I look at this passage in James, I see a different pattern, right? And it's not a comprehensive list, but I think that there's some sage advice in helping us think about how we can communicate with others. So look at verse 19 where James gives some practical advice, right? He starts by saying, know this. Okay, he's getting their attention. All right, guys, know this. And then you see his affection, right? He says, my beloved brethren. He does this throughout the book of James. When, he's, when, he, when he wants to get their attention, he kind, of, he kind of pairs it with this affectionate term, my beloved brethren, right? And then he gives them a command. And in English, it's translated as something like, let every person. Okay, it's kind of, a strange, kind of a strange construction, but I'm a linguist, and so these things are interesting to me. But the verb that's translated as let, it literally means to exist, okay? Exist as someone, be someone, live as someone who does what? And then he lists these three descriptive terms. Someone who is quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, and this type of communication, it runs into direct conflict with the style of communication that seems to be valued in our society today, doesn't it? Right? We don't listen well. Why? Because we're trying to think of what to say. Okay? We look for the first opportunity to get in our point, to say what we have to say. Or we like to top other people's stories with our own. And we can easily get caught up and frustrated by what other people have to say. Now, truthfully, as I was reflecting upon this the other day, I realized how little I live this out, okay? I'm sure my wife and kids would confirm this, my friends, right? I'm often slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to anger. But here's the thing. Even though this is challenging, this is how God has created us to interact. They're nodding their heads. This is how God has created us to interact with others. I shouldn't have looked. So let's work. <laughs> No, I'm teasing. So let's, let's, look, let's look at these, okay? So what's listening, right? Listening is not hearing, okay? Hearing, is, listening is taking in information via my ears that someone else is sharing, okay, with me. Good listening is more than just gathering the facts or details, but listening enables us to catch the feelings, fears, assumptions, hopes, and dreams of others, Right? We can hear all of these things when we listen well. And if we really care about other people and what's best for them, listening is an ideal starting point to understanding where they are. It enables us to understand well what a person's thinking and feeling, right? This is an important tool for us to use. Now, it can be fake pretty easily, though, can't it? Right? We can pretend to listen. You know, occasionally we nod our head. Maybe throw out a simple question. Oh, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. But do we really listen, 
right? And that's so much more challenging. It requires that we pay attention, that we focus our concentration, that we maybe ask clarifying questions before we share our opinion. And it really honors people when we listen well to them. Now, this idea of being slow to listen, uh, you know, I was, I was thinking about this. I was in, um, it's so true outside of the church, right? Uh, I was in Italy um, two weeks ago for an academic conference. There was a guy there who's an anthropologist and a linguist. Struck me as one of those super intelligent guys who could explain things really well. And, and um, he asked great questions kind of in the meetings, okay? So, but I had a brief interaction with him outside the conference, and, and he, he was quite different outside the conference. So we're in the lobby, and he was going on and on about the state of the culture and politics in the United States. And a couple of things struck me. He seemed to presume that I agreed with him, perhaps because I'm in academia, but he never asked. And he spoke quite poorly of those who had a different view from him. He seemed like one of those guys who never interacts with people who hold an opposing view from him. I'm guessing, too, that he doesn't see much value in listening to people. There wasn't any sense of hearing from me, much less learning from my perspective. But if I'm honest, that can be true of me sometimes as well, right? And so I think that's... It's easy to look at others and not look at ourselves and see when we do the same things. So how can we be... Practically, how can we learn to listen? It's probably painfully obvious, but I'll say it anyway. Um, one of the things we need to do is to start by spending time from people who are different from us and learn from them. Not just what they believe, but why they believe it. We don't need to, and there's a the thing, we don't need to convince them, right? That's actually not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about convincing them, but giving them an opportunity to share, ask good questions, and being a friend can go a long way. You know, I think... Um, Laura and I were talking the other day, and it made me think about this. I think she's done a really good job of that building relationships kind of with the other moms, you know, in our neighborhood. So we live in this subdivision where everybody walks their kids together to school on a regular basis. And Laura's tried to work hard to cultivate relationships with them, to get to know them, to look for opportunities, to point them to Jesus. It's spending that time together in a super informal, unstructured kind of way, but it enables, um, enables her to, to really log time listening to people. And I think that's really, I think that's a, a way that we can really... Um, minister well to people. You know, one of the other keys to listening well is uh, learning to ask questions. This is like Kathy Bork's superpower, right? Um, but it affirms other people and it better, it enables us to better understand who they are. I, I was, I'd heard this story before, so I looked it up to see the other day. And um, Winston Churchill's mother, so this is during Victorian times, late 1800s, she was at dinner parties with two different men in the same week who were running for the prime minister to be prime minister of England. I don't know if you've ever heard this story before. William Gladstone and Benjamin Disraeli. And somebody asked her afterwards the difference between them, and this is what she said. She said that when she was dining with Gladstone, that she thought he was the cleverest person in England. But when she was dining with Disraeli, she thought that she was the cleverest person in England. Gladstone didn't ask questions, but Disraeli did. What an interesting, like that was the difference between them, right? And it had a real effect on her. Okay. Okay, what about being slow to speak? How quickly do we need to share our thoughts with others, right? It's awfully hard, if not impossible, 
to speak and listen at the same time. As a linguist, I can promise you that both of those processes involve you deriving meaning, either what you're thinking about saying or what you're hearing someone else say. You can't do them both well at the same time, okay? So we need to, we need to learn to be slow to speak, right? To let others finish what they're saying, right? To not, to not worry about stopping or topping their story, right? But again, we don't need to agree with them or correct them we can always circle back later. And I feel like sometimes we do need to feel the need to sort of correct them, right? But, but we don't. We can circle back later and revisit the issue. But here's the point. Here's the thing that struck me as I was thinking about this. And this is not something I've thought about much in my life until this week as I was thinking about this sermon. One of the most important things that happens when we're slow to speak is that we have a chance to pray before we speak, Right? And I do not do that much at all. We can pray for wisdom, the right words, composure. We can pray for the other person. And how much trouble would be averted, right, if we would stop and pray before we speak? There's a great example of this in Nehemiah, right? He's the cupbearer to the king. He's in the king's presence on a regular basis. He's just got this bad news that the city of Jerusalem is in disrepair, and he was really sad about it. And the king could tell, and he asked him what was wrong, and so he explained the situation to him, and the king asked him what he wanted to do. Like, Nehemiah, what do you want? What, what should happen here? And this is what Nehemiah says. This is how it starts. Nehemiah 2, you don't need to turn there, but it's in Nehemiah 2, verses 4 and 5. So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, and then he goes on, right? He stopped and prayed, and then he answered the king. That is slowness to speak. What a great example for us, right? How much trouble would we avert? How much more of a blessing could we be to other people if we would be slow to speak, right? Listen to them and ask good questions, okay? All right, so finally, James encourages them to be slow to anger. So the word that's translated as anger, it means violent passion, right? So the passage doesn't say, he doesn't say don't get angry. He says to be slow to get angry, we can be angry in our heart and in our mind towards others, right? It's not even something that needs to be outwardly expressed. So, like, comprehensively, be slow to be slow to anger. Quickness to anger is often indicative of a situation in which we don't have all of the information, where we have stopped listening, where we feel this need to express our own thoughts, and where we've given up on... It's all about... We've given up on healthy communication. It's all about me in this one, right? It's all about very me-focused, Okay, but, but that's not who God calls us to be. And anger tends to feed anger too, doesn't it? Right? Being slow to anger can have a powerful impact on a situation. So I'm going to wrap up, but I, I want to tell a story that I'm, I do get angry. Um, but this is, so don't think like this is a normal thing, right? This is me one time um, maybe doing okay with this. So we lived in, when we were in Italy, we went on a trip to Sardinia. It's an island off the coast of Italy. We had to take a ferry to get there. So we put our car on the ferry, except our car was broken. So we had a rental car on the ferry. And so we'd gone over to the um, thing that we were going to do um, in Sardinia, and we were on our way back, hurrying to get to the ferry, a little bit lost because the stupid GPS was taking us through a small town. And so I'm driving through this small town, and I um, hit a truck going the opposite direction, um, mirror to mirror, right? So I pulled over, and we could all hear how mad that other guy was. We could hear from quite a distance. He was um, very, very, very angry. So I was scared, um, in a hurry, 
And I came up to him, I apologized, I took responsibility, and I offered him the equivalent of $50. <laughs> and he looked at me, and I'm not kidding when I say this, he said, actually, if you have a 20, that'll be fine. And, I, and I'm not kidding, right? I think that he was so disarmed by my response that it brought out a gracious response in him, right? And anger feeds anger. But if we can be slow to anger, then I think the Lord can really use that in our interaction with others, right? So what good does anger do? Well, one thing that anger doesn't do is, that James says this in the passage, it does not produce or lead to God's righteousness, right? Unhealthy anger can lead us to acting in a way that doesn't demonstrate God's goodness, and it doesn't point others to him. And most of the time when we're angry, like I said, we're more concerned about ourselves, our own will, right, than anything else. And that's not what God's called me to. He's called me to love him and to tell others about him. So again, I, there's a place for righteous anger, right? There absolutely is. It's biblical. But I believe that righteous anger comes about slowly. We've listened well, we've prayed, and then perhaps that's the appropriate way to respond. Okay? Okay. I'm long, so I'm going to wrap up here. Um, we, we really do live in a world where less and less people believe in God, less and less people attend church, less and less people hold a Christian worldview. But God has given us a great opportunity to build relationships with people, right? To share the good news with them. And this passage in James, it reminds us that we need to be, what? Careful to not be deceived by the false beliefs of the world around us that we need to reflect on the truth of who God is and how he operates in the world, and that we need to graciously engage with others. So I want us to, we're going to transition into communion. Um, what I want us to do is we're going to wrap up by taking a moment of reflection. And I want you to just take a minute and to think about kind of what, if any, specific application God might have for you in this passage. And then after a minute or so, Matt's going to come up and then he's going to lead us, um, he's going to lead us in the Lord's Supper. Actually, let me pray for us first, and then we'll, take, then we'll take a moment of reflection, okay? Father, we're thankful for your word, and we're thankful that it reveals the truth of who you are, that it warns us of um, what we need to avoid, and that it does give us practical advice on how we can really love others. And so I pray that you would help us to um, love you well, to love others well. And uh, as we just take a moment to reflect on this passage, I pray that you would open our hearts um, to hear what there might be for each of us in this. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.